Morning. Good to see you today. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here if we haven't met yet. Uh, we are going to continue our series this morning. We've been walking through the book of Philippians and uh, we've, we've titled this journey, The Search for Joy, as we've sort of uncovered what real joy looks like in the scriptures and where, where we find joy as followers of God. And then often it's in places that are quite counterintuitive to us um, um, as human beings. Anyway, this morning, I want to invite you to open a Bible to Philippians chapter 3. Um, you know, one of the things we do here is we always put the verses on the screen because, you know, we're just so accommodating that way, right? And yet, I also want to say, maybe I'm just old-fashioned enough to think that sometimes holding the actual book and, and feeling the paper is a good thing. So uh, maybe this morning, if you want to pull your Bible out or if you didn't bring one, you're in luck. We have one right in front of you in the pew rack. If you're in the front row, it's under your seat, right? Right there. See, I even have, see, you think I didn't think about you, but I did think about you, right? You know, at any rate, it's dangerous to sit in the front and then mock the pastor, right? That's a, t- that's a, t- that's a dangerous move right there. Um, no, I'm just kidding, uh, kind of. Uh, <laughs> No, you have a Bible put out, Philippians chapter 3. If you use a pew Bible, we're on page 952. Um, and this morning, as you turn and as we jump in, I want to take you back, back to a moment in history that shapes the passage that we will read today, that gives us understanding about it. The year is 42 B.C., Mark, Antony, and Octavian have just defeated Brutus in a bloody battle, a battle that raged in a hot Mediterranean valley right on the edge of Greece, just a few miles inland from the Aegean Sea. This victory now means Octavian, later to be called Caesar Augustus, now has control of the most powerful empire this world has ever known, the Roman Empire. And right on the heels of this victory, Octavian makes a very intentional and strategic move. He decides that instead of hauling a bunch of war-baked soldiers back to an already overcrowded Rome, he'll leave them there. He'll plant a colony right where they are. And so what he does is he makes an offer, he makes a proposition to give out land to his soldiers, tax free land to every single one of them and he says why don't you guys just go ahead and stay right here retire right here and go on living the good life and oh yeah he says while you're at it while you're here make sure and just do this one little thing make sure this entire region continues to have allegiance to me allegiance to the empire allegiance to rome And friends, in that moment, the city of Philippi was born. The city that Paul writes to emerged out of the ashes in that moment in history. And then, for decade after decade, this pattern continued. Retired Roman military men and their families would continue to move to and retire and settle down in Philippi. And friends, this was no accident. You'll remember maybe from week one of our series, if you were here, that Philippi was a very strategic city. It sat right on a main thoroughfare that connected Europe and Asia, the the north from the south, the east from the west. And the primary way the Romans kept control of their vast empire was by establishing a network of colonies. Here's the thing about the Roman Empire. 
It, it wasn't unique in size and scope. Here's how it was unique. It was unique in the length of time it was able to maintain power in the world. Other empires would come and go, but the Romans, they had staying power. And where they found their staying power was right here in this strategy, in this colonial strategy. You see, the best definition of a colony in the Roman Empire was simply this. A little replica of Rome somewhere else. When you lived in an established Roman colony... By law, you were considered to be on Roman soil. You were a citizen of Rome. You were a citizen of the eternal city. It's what they called it. And that meant that even though you were technically living in Macedonia or in Greece or in Asia, you were taxed like you lived in Rome. Not like the conquered nations whose taxes were much more severe. If you were living in a Roman colony, it meant you were covered by Roman Law, which was a far less harsh law than the conquered territories enjoyed. And as a colonist, your job, as a citizen of Rome, your job was to Romanize the city where you lived, to bring Rome's culture to that place, wherever it was. And Paul, he understands this Roman Philippian mindset, and so he uses how they think to communicate one of the most powerful concepts in the entire New Testament. He says, you have always considered yourselves citizens of Rome. And this means that you have promoted Roman values. You've looked out for Roman interests. You've adopted the Roman way of thinking, the Roman way of living. And you've tried to spread the Roman way of living all around the world. That's been your mandate. That's been your calling. That's been your, your value system and your identity. But now, Paul says, everything's changed. For those of us who follow Jesus, our Citizenship is in heaven. How radical those words would have sounded to you if you were a first century Philippian. You see, we must remember again that Paul is writing this letter to a town that is teeming with patriotism. And by the way, friends, it, it was not my plan to preach this message on Veterans Day weekend, although I think God might have had a hand in it. You see, this is a city, Philippi, that is chocked full of army veterans who feel tremendously loyal to Caesar and to the empire. These are people who have bled for Rome, given their lives in her service. Philippi is a town of proud Romans who bleed proud Roman red blood. And so in this context, when Paul says we are citizens of heaven, it is even that much more radical. He says, you are no longer primarily to consider yourselves Romans, but Christ followers. Your highest loyalty is now no longer to Caesar, but Jesus. And you no longer live to advance the ideals of the Roman Empire. Instead, now you are to give your entire life to advancing the ideas of the kingdom of God. Because it's no longer Caesar who is Lord. It is no longer Caesar who has given you your life. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, what Paul says is that everything these Philippians have been taught to value and promote and live their lives for has now all of a sudden changed. What Paul says here in short is, now as followers of Christ, you are not called to Romanize this world, but to heavenize it. Now your calling is different. And friends, if you remember, Jesus actually prayed the exact same thing. He says, he's talking to his disciples, he's preaching a message, the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about prayer, and he says, when you pray, pray like this. And, and by the way, I do not think what Jesus means is to say these exact words. I think what Jesus is saying here is, hey, say these words if you, if you want, but here are the things that you should go to God. Here are the things you should seek after with the Lord. And then he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come your will be done where on earth as it is in heaven and by the way right in there is just a wonderful working definition of heaven for you if you need one heaven quite simply is any place where things are perfectly the way God longs for them to be Where's heaven? Wherever things are perfectly the way God longs for them to be. And a lot of times when we pray that, friends, when we, or read those words, we may be tempted to think, yeah, God, you do it. I'm all for that. I'm all for your will being done, so you go for it. God, may your will be done on earth as it in heaven. You You go, God, right? But Jesus is actually, when he asks us to pray this, calling us to something so much more. This is his way of saying, When you pray, you say to God, God, I want to be a part of it. God, I want to bring your will and ways and rule and reign and love to the world. I want to be used by you for this purpose. I want to bring the culture of heaven to earth. I want to be a heavenizer for you and through you. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to these Philippians. He's saying, you Philippians are now citizens of heaven. You are being called to heavenize Philippi. And therefore, because we believe that Paul is not just writing this letter to them, but also to us, this morning, Cedar Mill Bible Church, God is saying to you and me, we are not primarily citizens of America or Oregon or Portland or Beaverton. We are not here. We do not live to promote American values or Oregonian values, by the way. This is is really fresh, right after an election, isn't it? Or Beaverton values. We live to promote kingdom of God values that is our highest calling and ultimate allegiance. Friends, this passage is radical because it enlists us as heavenizers of West Portland. As people who now work for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth in the same way that it is in heaven. Now sometimes, maybe even most of the time, this little verse, it's a popular little verse, right? It's one that you might find on a bumper sticker or a Christian coffee mug. Uh, This little verse that's at the very heart of our passage today, sometimes it's interpreted the wrong way. Sometimes well-meaning Christians understand this verse to mean, this world is not my home. You heard that before? This, not of this world. I think there's an entire Christian, Christian clothing company that's called, not of this world. Like, I, this is not my home. I do not live here. I am not from here. I'm just passing through, right? And, and the idea 
of that sometimes gets translated into, you know, someday I'm getting beamed out of this place and so I'm just gonna stay as far away from society and its problems as I possibly can until that day finally comes. I am not a citizen of Portland. I'm a citizen of heaven. And so what happens around here isn't really my concern because I'm just waiting for the day when I can go back home, when I can go to heaven. But friends, that is not the message of the New Testament. That is not what Paul means here at all. If you were a Roman in first century Philippi, you weren't just biding your time in Philippi until someday when you could get out of there and go back to Rome. No, you understand full well that your calling, your mandate was to bring the culture and life of Rome to the place where you lived. In this instance, Philippi. Paul in this passage is not calling us as Christians to be less engaged in our society, but more engaged. Now, one other thing before we back up and walk through some verses, let me say one other thing here because this kind of talk can often be misinterpreted. And so please hear this. This passage is calling us to be heavenizers, for us to heavenize the world, to partner with God in making this world that we live in the way he longs for it to be, but not in the way of Rome. You see, Rome would Romanize through power and force and sword and coercion, but we are not to heavenize in the same way that Rome would Romanize. We are to do it in the way of Jesus, the way of love the way of self-sacrifice, the way of the cross. You see, while Rome was always looking to grab and maintain power, Jesus was laying his power down. While Rome was looking out for their rights and benefits and privilege and self-interest, Jesus sacrifices all of those things for the sake of advancing his kingdom. That's what chapter two of Philippians is all about, if you were here for those messages. It's about modeling our lives after the cross. The big word is cruciformity, where our lives look like the death and sacrifice and downward mobility of Jesus in order to bring his kingdom. You see, Rome did the opposite. They mounted up to get their way, and Jesus mounts it down. And then last week in chapter 3, Pastor Nick preached on this. Paul says, it's not just Jesus who lived this way. Because maybe you're here this morning, you're tempted to think, well, of course Jesus could do that. He's Jesus. I don't know how, I'm just me, right? But, but Paul sort of cuts us off from that way of thinking because he says, it's not just Jesus who gave up his life to bring heaven to earth. He says, I too live this way. And now as we pick up the letter in verse 17, Paul says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you... Have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And that little phrase, follow my example, can be translated, be imitators of me. Something I love about Paul, man. He was confident in the way he lived his faith. Be imitators of me. I'm not that confident. I'm never going to stand up here and be like, you guys all imitate me, right? Like, I'm doing it. But Paul is a little bit that way. But here's another way you can translate that passage. Not just be imitators of me. You could also translate that passage, be imitators with me. Be imitators with me of who? Of Jesus. 
See, the message is, Paul's saying, just like I'm doing, make Jesus the Lord of your life and you go out and live not as a citizen of this world, but as a citizen of heaven, as a person who is bringing the culture of heaven to this earth, as a person who's willing to sacrifice to advance the kingdom of God in this world. Friends, I love how Paul says, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. My freshman year in college, the RA, the resident assistant on my dorm floor, was a guy named Steve. And Steve wasn't the coolest cat in the world. He wasn't a star athlete. He wasn't extraordinarily good looking. He, he wasn't uh, really smart or talented in any way that I knew of. He was just sort of an average guy. But I'll tell you what, there was something different about Steve. Steve was kind. Steve cared. Steve always seemed to have time for you or anyone else. Steve wasn't chasing all the things in the world that everyone else seemed to be chasing. Instead, Steve just lived with this contentment and peace about him. And friends, God brought Steve into my life right at the right time, right when I was seeking and searching and questioning and wondering, what does it really look like to be a Christian in this world? What does it really look like to live for Jesus as a freshman in college on a college campus? And then there he was, Steve. Here's a question. Who are you watching? Whose life are you looking at and saying, that's who I want to be. That's how I want to live. I'm watching this person or these people or this couple follow Jesus, live for the kingdom, heavenize the world. They're a great example, and I'm going to follow their lead. Who are you keeping your eyes on these days? Do you have any good citizen of heaven examples in your life? Because we all need examples in this world. We all need people who will inspire us and challenge us and motivate us and show us what it means to live as citizens of heaven. And here's why. Because Paul says this next in verse 18. He says, For I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. You see, the Roman world, much like our world, was a world that was teeming with many different philosophies on how to live. A lot of different self-help kind of strategies for how to live your life and what to do and how to think and where to go and who to be. And because Philippi was right on a major trade route, all these teachers and philosophers would end up passing right through town and teaching and preaching and promoting their different worldviews and life philosophies. And friends, most of those worldviews, most of those life philosophies were diametrically opposed to the message of Jesus. You see, the message of Jesus, the real message of Jesus, live a life of sacrifice, give everything up for the kingdom, it wasn't real popular in Rome back then. It's not real popular today. See, the life philosophies we really like are, here are the things you can do to be successful, to get ahead, to find happiness and joy and pleasure and comfort. Here's what you can do to win a lot of respect and admiration in the world. See, those are the kind of life philosophies that people glom onto. And they were alive and well in the ancient world as well. You see, materialism in all of its various forms is not a new idea. 
The idea that your entire life, that your time and energy and resources should be mostly used to seek and attain and find worldly pleasure for yourself here and now, that is not a 21st century American idea. That's been around as long as the world's been around. As long as human beings have walked this planet, that idea has been alive and well, at least post-fall. And Paul says, it breaks his heart. Paul says he weeps at the thought that people would give their lives to something that is so fragile, something that is so temporal, to something that will absolutely fail you every single time. He says in verse 19, their destiny is destruction. He goes on to say their mind is set on earthly things. Their destiny is destruction. Friends, If what you are living for is the stuff of this world, then your life will be destroyed. If you are living for success, it eventually fades. If you are living for health, it fails. If you are living for beauty, believe me, it goes. Even if you are living for relationships, if you're living for the people around you, even good relationships, even like the God honoring relationships, if you're living for your spouse or your kids or your parents, friends, even if you're living for relationships, eventually, here's the hard truth, people change, they move, or they die. One of those at least will happen. See, the point is, if your hope, if you're seeking to find your joy in the things of this world, eventually your joy will go away. And those are all really good things. Those are all really good things. They're just not the ultimate thing. They're just not, they're just not worthy of, of shouldering the weight of your identity and of your citizenship and of your value and of your identity. Paul is actually just telling us something here that is so obvious. If you're hoping in, if you put your hope in something in this world, eventually it will disappoint you and eventually it will go away. And yet, friends, I find that so many people just refuse to acknowledge this truth. They just don't want to see it. They're just hoping in the things of this world. They're just like, they're just diving in as citizens of America or of Oregon or of success. They're just citizens of self-satisfaction. In the end, Paul says, your joy will be destroyed. Then Paul describes what we are tempted to live for. He says, and, and here's the temptation. Here's what you're tempted to sort of put your hope in. Find, here's what you're tempted to find your joy in. He says, this is, this is like the place where it gets to start to get personal. Paul's digging deep here. He says, their God is their stomach. And this illustration is actually perfect for us because there has never been a society in the history of the world more obsessed with how our stomachs look than us. In fact, just this week, moment of confession, I joined the gym. I have not been working out. We had some like, schedule changes this year with our lives and with our kids, and I haven't been working out very much. And I need to get back into it because physical fitness done for the right reasons is a good thing. It is glorifying to God to take care of your body. But I joined the gym, right? And you're in there, and all these people are like really frustratingly fit, you know, and wearing tight clothing, and you're like, I can't wear those tight clothing. Anyway, just after like two days of working out at the gym, I uh, pulled a picture up on the internet of, the, of a guy with a six-pack, and I cropped it from here to here, and I sent it to my wife and said, just two days at the gym, honey, and the results are already in, you know. Um, 
And the point is this. We, the point is this, actually. Six-packs are not biblical. And I've been telling my wife that ever since we've got married. And now we have the proof. Now, the point is this. We live in a culture that worships our bodies. That in particular, worships our stomachs or our abdominal muscles. Worships the ability to see our abdominal muscles in our stomach, right? But at the stomach in the first century, what Paul's talking about here when he says your stomach is your God, this was a way of thinking about your bodily appetites. The stomach was a euphemism for bodily appetites. Appetites like food appetites, drink appetites, sexual appetites, financial appetites, pleasure appetites, popularity and recognition and acceptance appetites, achievement appetites, a whole lot of things fit into this little category that Paul calls the stomach. All the things that we are tempted to put our hope in, to find joy in. And Paul says, so many people in our world, what they worship, what they live for, the thing that drives and dictates how they spend their time and energy and resources and thought life is their desire for worldly success and satisfaction and pleasure. Paul is saying right here, that all around the Philippians and, and all around you and me as American Portlanders is this pressure and pull to worship our appetites, to worship our stomachs. To begin to live for the things of this world, to give our time and energy and resources as citizens of this life and of this place. To promote philosophies and ideologies of lives that focus on the here and now. So let me pause just for a second in this moment and ask you to reflect for a moment. What worldly appetites are vying to be your God these days? What worldly appetites are vying to be your God these days? What worldly appetites get in an inordinate amount of your time and energy and resources and thinking? If you're not sure, if you're not sure if maybe your stomach is starting to become your God, Paul adds something fairly convicting here. He says, their glory is their shame. Their stomachs are their gods and their glory is their shame. What's he saying? He's saying not only do people devote their lives to these appetites, not only do they give their time and energy and resources to to attaining these appetites, these worldly appetites that will eventually go away, he says not only do they go after these appetites, but then they glory in it. They revel in it. They boast and brag and post about it on Instagram. Or as Pete Amon likes to say, on fake book. Thanks, Pete. You see, it's one thing to sin. It's one thing to struggle with or slip into living for food or pleasure or sex or success too much. We all can kind of tend to sort of slip into that from time to time. That's just part of being a fallen human being, a fleshly creature. But it's another thing to just lean in and embrace it to accept it and to glory in your shame, to flaunt your shame and brag about your shame and take pride in your shame. 
to say, this is who I am. This is what I'm living for. Look at me, world. I'm living for money. I'm living for sex. I'm living for stuff. I'm living for pleasure. And I'm just all in. And I'm not even ashamed of it. I glory in it. Again, here's the question for us. Got any stomachs in your life these days? Got any appetites that you've started to worship and live for? Is there anything that's pulling you away from embracing this central truth of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but our citizenship is in heaven? Because here's the reality. The gospel of Jesus will call us to make a decision. Whether you are a first century Philippian torn between loyalty to the empire or a 21st century American like me, torn between loyalties in our world, loyalties to our nation, loyalties to money, success, popularity, fame, acceptance, comfort, pleasure, wealth. You see, this passage is is begging you, forcing you to ask this question. Where do your true loyalties lie? Who and or what values are you promoting, adopting, spreading. You see, the gospel of Jesus calls for your loyalty, calls for you to be shaped by kingdom values, calls for you to identify yourself with the will and ways of God, calls for you to give your life, to sacrifice, to set self-interest aside in order to bring heaven to earth. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. One who follows after him does what he did. This is why in chapter 4, by the way, Paul says, therefore, in other words, because of what I just said, therefore, like, because of that amazing truth that I just shared with you, that we are citizens of heaven, he says, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. And what he's saying here is, is like, I'm the one who introduced you to the gospel. I'm the one who introduced you to Jesus. I'm the one who told you and, and helped you step into this reality that you are citizens of heaven. You are my joy and my crown. And then he says, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Dear friends, in what way? Stand firm in the Lord in this way, in the way of saying, I will live as a citizen of heaven. He's saying, stand firm in living as citizens, not of this world, but of heaven. Let that truth guide and direct who you are and absolutely everything you do. Don't compartmentalize it. I'm a citizen of heaven on Sundays when I'm around these friends or in these scenarios, but then at work or with these friends or with my high school buddies, then I sort of downshift and I just kind of live for the world. No, he says, remember who you are all the time, all the time. In the next verses, he'll talk about a conflict between two women in the church. And and it seems kind of random because we never really learn what the conflict is or what it's about. But what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, let the fact that, we are, that you are a citizen of heaven seep down into every single area of your life, into every single relationship you have, even the smallest things. In this case, he's saying, let the fact that you are a citizen of heaven drive you two women towards reconciliation and unity. He's saying, apply it all the way down, even to the minor squabbles that you have between yourselves. And then finally, one more thing as we close. 
One thing that was pretty apparent about uh, the Roman Empire was this. If the Roman citizens in one of the colonies, in this case in Philippi, in Greece, if they got into a situation where they were becoming overwhelmed by the citizens and culture around them, if in Philippi, in spite of their best attempts to Romanize the city, the Greeks just got out of hand and things went south and there was anarchy and even violence, in spite of all their attempts, if Philippi refused to become like Rome, here is what the Romans knew. They had tremendous confidence living there because they knew this. The emperor himself was not far away. In fact, they knew that in an ultimate crisis, Caesar himself would come from Rome and he would come to Philippi and he would make things right and he would establish the kingdom there and the authority of, of the Roman Empire in Philippi once more. That's what would happen. When things got bad enough, Caesar himself would come to town and he would fix it. And again, Paul is using this very idea to speak directly to the Philippian Christians in verses 20 and 21. He's saying, someday, King Jesus will do just that. And we eagerly await a savior from there. From where? From heaven, from the place where everything is exactly the way God longs for it to be. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You see, Paul says, you just keep heavenizing, you just keep living for the kingdom, you just keep sacrificing and giving your life away to bring heaven here to earth, and even when things look bleak, and even when you look around and it doesn't look like heaven at all, and even when you look in the mirror and you think, man, I don't even think I look like heaven, I'm not even sure if I am being transformed, just remember this fact, Paul says, someday Jesus will come to establish his rule and reign and ways in this world, and he will also establish it in you. You see, someday... King Jesus is coming and he's going to do what none of us will ever be able to do on our own. So Paul says, in that, take courage, find hope, let this truth offer you joy that can never, ever, ever be thwarted or destroyed. Friends, we always have to remember as we look around our world and our, especially these days, as we look around our world and we think, is heaven advancing? Is the kingdom moving forward? Is God winning? Because sometimes it didn't feel like it. And sometimes when I sit and I think about myself and I think about my life and I think about my soul and my desires and my longings and my failures and I think, is God winning? Because sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Paul says, never forget this fact. Jesus is not done. He's not done with this place, and he's not done with you. He will transform your lowly body so that you will be like his glorious body. That is our hope. That is our future. That is, the, that is what we can expect, all of us who are citizens of heaven someday. And so this morning, I invite you to once again come to the table and declare that truth come to the table and take a piece of bread and the cup, the body of Christ, sacrificed 
so the kingdom could advance in this world. The blood of Christ spilled, shed, so that the kingdom, so that God's will and ways could manifest themselves in this world. I invite you to come and remember what Jesus has done and to remember the example that we are to follow. And if you've got any stomachs, if you've got any appetites, if there are any places in your life these days where you're tempted to live as a citizen of this world, Jesus says, you can bring those forward too. And you can leave them right at the foot of the cross. Because my power isn't just to save you, my power is to transform you. Because Jesus longs to bring heaven to earth, heaven to earth in you and through you. You see, this is a meal that fuels us. It's a meal that says, God's power is with you. You may not feel like you have what it takes to be a heavenizer in West Portland. That may scare you to death. That may intimidate the heck out of you. But Jesus says, remember the power that you have in me. We're gonna remember and we're gonna declare that power together this morning at these tables. So you come, remember who our God is and go out empowered. Let me pray and then the tables will be open. You can come receive the elements whenever you're ready. Father, thank you so much for this morning, for that little line that is just packed with power, that we are citizens of heaven. May we never forget that, Lord. May we, may we identify so strongly with you as your children, as citizens of your kingdom, that sacrificing and laying down our lives no longer becomes a chore or difficult or hard, but God, it just becomes the natural outflow of who we are in you. Would you do that in us? And would you give us joy and peace and confidence in the midst of the sacrifices and struggles that lie ahead? May we continue to be more and more a church that looks like your cross. That's our prayer this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.